All right, let's uh, open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians, if you haven't already. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're looking at verses 4 through 17. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Our message this morning is called A United Front. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. These are the words of God. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all word and all knowledge, even as the witness about Christ was confirmed in you, so that you were not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, beyond reproach in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, not in wisdom of word, so that the cross of Christ will not be made empty. Let's pray. Our Father and God, your word is more precious than fine gold and sweeter than the purest of honey. We turn to your scripture, and as we do so, send your Holy Spirit to infuse your word with truth and grace so that the good news of your love would shine before our eyes and delight our senses so that we cannot help but respond to you with wonder and faith and trust. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Conflict resolution. Conflict resolution. It may very well be one of the most, if not the most, difficult thing in Christian ministry. Part of the reason is because even justified by faith sinners don't always go about things the right way. Uh, that is the way the Bible prescribes. What happens when disagreements arise? What happens when disagreements arise? We all have varying degrees of desires and ambition, and if those desires do not align with the Scripture, then quarrels, dissensions, and divisions pop up, and frankly, no church is immune to such obstacles. It is James, you'll remember, the brother of Jesus, who warns against unchecked desires in the heart that spill out into the community. You can cross-reference James chapter 4, verse 1 for that. It's a great verse about what causes conflict. Well, it's your competing desires. That's where conflict comes from. Now, regardless of the difficulties and challenges of church life, the Bible still calls us to a united front. The Bible calls us to a united front. Uh, with a common Savior, a common confession, and a common baptism fueling the church's ministry efforts. Uh, just because something may very well be uh, difficult and adverse, it doesn't mean that it's bad and we should avoid it altogether. 
What the Apostle Paul will do here with the fledgling and disjointed Corinthian church is challenge them to take up a united front. To challenge them to take up a united front, which means that the church of God, as an alliance in Christ, does have a common enemy. However, that enemy is not one another. That's part of what we're going to talk about this morning. The worst sorts of divisions are caused by the immature belief that your brother or sister next to you is the enemy. That is the worst sort of divisions. And regarding our text, the fact remains that there was a power struggle in the church of Corinth, which should not be surprising given the external cultural, pre cultural pressures that went on during this time. Rome was at the very top of the pecking order. They were at the very top if you were a Roman citizen, especially if you were, had some influence and affluence, you were at the top. Rome was there, followed by the Greeks in terms of social structure, and then, of course, the Jews. They were at the very bottom of the cultural food chain. The ecclesia in Corinth had a mixture of all of these people groups and then some. So the, externally, outside the church, there were certain standards, certain uh, social structures, a ladder, so to speak, and some were at the top, some were at the bottom. And everybody, there was rep everyone was represented to some degree or another in the church in Corinth. So culturally speaking, some people were considered better than others, just culturally speaking. They had more money, more power, more influence. Uh, they had a larger, more influential social standing. Their interactions in the church reflected this uh, sore disposition which we'll get to with the way the Lord's Supper was handled and how you had the rich and famous essentially having all the access to the bread and wine and the rest, if, especially when we'll get into this, but the outer courtyard of usually some of these homes, all the poor were kind of out there and they weren't really getting any. And so the meal had become a reflection of the culture around them. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. That stops now. So there's a lot of those social pressure things that will come out in the letter, especially when we get in chapter 11, 12, and so forth. Now, the gospel says something completely contradictory to this. In the assembly of Christ, in the ecclesia, the church, the gathering, we are all on equal footing in the sight of the cross of Jesus Christ. We all stand as sinners in need of God's grace. So where again is your boasting, Paul effectively says. <laughs> With that reality, where is your boasting? And this, this is the united front Paul desired in all the churches, and yet among and yet those in Corinth, they struggled with favoring one teacher and preacher over another. That's what was at the heart of this, among other things. They were favoring one teacher over another. The ethnic divisions ran deep in the Roman Empire, yet the gospel calls us to something that transcends such humanist contrivances. Certain loyalties had sprung up because of these divisions, and so Paul calls on them to knock it off, to get back to the united front that we must have for the sake of the kingdom. The church, as it turns out, belongs to God, not man. She's Jesus' bride. And if that doesn't help you get your act together, nothing will. Let's look at our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
Last week, just by way of reminder, we looked at the first three verses which served as Paul's initial greeting to the church. He writes to the believers in Corinth, but he also writes to believers everywhere. Uh, he offers a blessing on the front end, wishing them grace and peace. Wonderful words that we should say more often there in verse 3. Grace and peace. And that was standard behavior for Paul. He was always wanting grace and peace to prevail in the churches. And he begins in verse 4 by thanking God and not the Corinthians. That is something that stands out right away. He thanks God and he does not thank God uh, he doesn't thank the Corinthians. What does he have to thank them for? They're the ones causing all this, these problems. <laughs> thank you for making my work more difficult. Um, Paul says, no, I'm thanking God. And no doubt Paul is grateful for the work of grace that happened in Corinth, but he's also going to be confronting an issue. And the only way to anchor that confrontation with, within the hope of restoration is by the grace of God. The grace of God should run the entire ship. So Paul is thankful. No doubt he remembers, writing from Ephesus now, he remembers when he first arrived. He left Athens and he gets there and he runs into Priscilla and Aquila and they strike up a friendship and immediately, all right, praise God for the work here. And, and then he ends up, wow, this Crispus guy, a former leader in the synagogue, he converts and then Sosthenes as well. And, and suddenly he's, there, there are converts and the church starts to grow. So Paul's thinking, Man, the grace of God was so powerful there at the beginning. I got to witness all of this in our church planting efforts. So he is a grateful man. You see, here Paul thanks God on their behalf for the grace which came to them in Christ Jesus. And despite their innumerable flaws, the Corinthians had received undiluted high-octane grace, pure grace. That's what they had been given. And he thanks God for that. God had shown a plenitude of favor to them through the initial work of the gospel there in their lives. And receiving salvation, we know, is by grace through faith. And God had done a great work there. So Paul simply celebrates this work. And we should be celebrating the work of God. We should be celebrating the work of God, as we did earlier when we talked about our efforts at the March for Life. And we want to rejoice in God's providence. Now remember, he's reminding them of the fundamentals of the faith. They have no grounds for boasting because the supreme gift is the grace of God. You know, what, what do you have that you did not receive, he will say later? Nothing. We came into this world as a naked baby and we will leave without a hearse attached to that or a u-haul attached to the hearse we we everything we have from start to finish is by the grace of god so what is this boasting all about they these corinthians are in christ which means they are subjects of his kingdom christ gave them everything they owe him their very own lives which is exactly what paul develops here in verses five through nine in every respect, says verse 5, they were enriched in Him in all word and all knowledge. The Spirit of God, in an economic metaphor here, had made them profusely rich. That is, spiritually speaking, they had an endless money supply and an abundance of assets. The credit column on the books was very well stocked. They had a lot and what were those riches specifically? What had God given them? Well, the LSB does right, translating these words as word 
and knowledge. They were made rich in word and knowledge. Instead of the speculative so-called wisdom of the sophists and their flawed system of Greek philosophy, the Corinthians have true revelational knowledge. They can know truth. They can speak truth. That's why it's great in apologetics and evangelism. To go right for it. How do you even know anything? And you start to cut, take the axe to the root there. But Christians have true revelational knowledge so they can know and speak truth in a world that lives by lies. They've been made rich in this. These things are wonderful gifts. They're expressed later in the book in terms of prophecy and tongues. So Christ gave the church gifts. He gave them skilled speakers with depths of knowledge. And rather than being a problem to avoid, they are gifts to embrace. And most certainly not something to exploit. The truth was preached and the truth was apprehended. And that is a gift. God had revealed himself. That's the foundation of all knowledge. If you do not start with God's self-revelation, you have no justification for any bit of knowledge. And so they were made rich in this. And Paul reminds them in verse 6 that the witness and testimony there, it's a legal term, about Christ was confirmed, that word, is important. It was confirmed in you. The gospel message came to them not based on their own self-sufficiency. God doesn't look around and say, that guy seems smart, I should save him. That is not how God functions. All preachers have to remember, and they must remember, that it is the work of the Spirit to confirm, verify, and establish the truth of the message in the hearts of those who listen. And that's what's so freeing about evangelism and talking to people. Because I'm just, I get to just share the truth. I don't have to save them, which is great because I'm incapable of doing such things. So eloquence without the Spirit's power is idle rhetoric. The very thing Paul is going to circle back to. So preaching, preaching the truth and promises of the gospel is faithfulness. This was confirmed in them. It's a legal term. God had issued a confirmation here. And in verse 7, Paul reminds them that they are not lacking in spiritual grace gifts. Uh, there are no benefits of the gospel that we must go hunt down. Um, we are not to clamor for more as though Christ were holding back from us. You've been given everything. You've been given everything. It's confirmed in you. In fact, eschatologically speaking, and, and as they and we await for the full revelation of Jesus Christ, which is something that should be done eagerly, by the way, we must remember that in that day, when the last enemy to, to be defeated is death, that's 1 Corinthians 15, the same Christ who confirmed us in the Spirit at salvation will also confirm us for eternal life. So present salvation, future salvation, Paul is connecting the dots for them. In other words, personal forgiveness is tied to cosmic deliverance. Um, God equips his church in the present to produce end time results. That's essentially what he's saying here. And in verse 8, that word confirm shows up again. It's not, and this is important to think about when you think of eschatology and all of us facing the judgment seat of Christ. It's not as though, it's not that we're going to be acquitted at the final judgment. It's that there won't even be a charge or accusation against us. 
That's what he's saying here. You were confirmed in Christ the moment the Spirit changed your heart and you were brought into Christ. But at the end, you're also confirmed. It's not that you're sitting there waiting and wondering, oh man, is, is Jesus going to rule in my favor? There's no book that's going to come out and, and, or like a file, you think of like a legal file, you know, a, a briefing. Well, you know, we're not sure what to do with you, Jason. You know, I don't, I don't know. There's, what are we going to do with you? Uh, we're not sure how to rule here. You've done some pretty gnarly things. There's no, none of that. There's not going to be a charge or an accusation brought against you. We will be totally and utterly unblameable. Grace upon grace indeed. And remember, those he calls, he justifies. And those he justifies, he glorifies. Now, I hasten to add here that this eschatological component is, is vitally important. It's going to show up again later in 1 Corinthians 15. As humans... Uh, we confess that we see things in the world because the sun shines and illumines the place. If there's no sun shining, we don't see really much of anything. But eschatologically, we also confess that we only see dimly right now, but on, someday we will be, all will be fully revealed and we'll be able to see Christ face to face. As one writer puts it, Christians long for the curtains to be flung open wide, for the sun to stream in upon the whole of reality, and for Christ to be seen by all as he truly is. We see the effects of the Son of God in the world, but someday we shall behold him in all his holiness and purity, and we'll stare at the Christ, and we will not go blind. Because now we would be blind. Now, a wonderful truth of the gospel in verse 9 is that God is faithful. God is faithful. They, like us, were called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus our Lord. We are sons of grace because Jesus is the Son. And this calling is the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. And He is utterly capable to woo or drag someone to the Lord. That's Jesus' metaphor in the Gospel of John. And they are unable to resist His power. No one can successfully say, the Holy Spirit tried to save me and I was great at conquering him. Admirable foe, but he could not win. No one can say that. The church's protection against division and discord is found not in our abilities, or lack thereof, to prove ourselves and impress God, nor is it in faking our way through fellowship and worship. No, it's God's grace and love that brings us into his kingdom as illustrated in the church. So to be in Christ, to be in Christ is to be in the fellowship and communion of the church. And you cannot have one without the other. It's a package deal. Your identity and status changes. All charges against you are dropped. So that's his logic. Why bring a petty charge against another family member? All your charges were dropped. Why are you straining a gnat with your brother? So he's laying seeds here for the rest of the, of the book and the letter here. And that really leads us to the main point of the letter. In verse 10, Paul kicks off a long essay. essay the, the essay will end in chapter 4. But this essay, this exhortation, is an urgent appeal for unity. The divisions that exist in Corinth are a flagrant violation of the fellowship they have in Christ. And literally, that word is where we get schisms. These schisms and divisions were unlawful breaks in the fellowship of the saints. Sometimes there are lawful breaks 
For example, in the Protestant Reformation, when you break from the heretical teachings of Rome. That is a lawful break, even though they wouldn't see it that way. But we do. But there are also schisms which can happen, and those are unlawful breaks. Unlawful breaks meaning it's not because of doctrine, it's because of something petty. It's something little. So rather than fighting, they should be uniting. And rather than internal bickering, they should have had a united front for the sake of the gospel. Now he calls on them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ there in verse 10. In the name. His appeal is a desire for deep and sincere reconciliation. It's a passionate plea that is rooted in the only name that matters, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Lord and theirs, he says back in verse 2. So Paul calls on them to agree, that is to mend the division. That word agree there literally means speak the same thing. And the phrase made complete refers to something being repaired or restored to proper working condition. Uh, Paul was a tent maker, and the metaphor here is like a tent, which has a split in the canvas. So in the ancient world, if you built a tent, you want it to protect you from the elements. And in this case, if there is a tear or a split in the canvas, right, it, it can't do its job. In order for a tent to do its job, it needs to prevent water and things from coming in. And it can't do that if there's a gaping hole in the tent. So in order for a church to do its job, it needs to prevent hostility from entering the assembly, and it cannot do so if there's a split in the church. If there is a break in the fabric of the assembly, all of a sudden bad things happen. Paul gives what might be considered to be a compliment sandwich here. There's a positive. He said, all must agree. There's a negative. No splits. And another positive, be of the same mind in judgment. So something positive, negative, positive. So compliment sandwiches are actually quite biblical. Sort of. <laughs> now, they need to be thinking clearly and judging soberly, which is part of the church's task. And they cannot do that with nonsense going on in the assembly. So somebody, Chloe's mentioned here in verse 11, Someone from Chloe's household, it could have been a slave, a family member, whoever it is, we thank God. Somebody told Paul what was going on. What was the problem? Well, factions arose. The church was split into various fan bases. Uh, some were huge fans of Paul. Some preferred Apollos. They thought he was awesome. Some of them liked Peter, Cephas. They and then you had, in verse 12, there were some who were proud about their humility in following Christ. Factions, favorite teachers, all, of course, were wrong. They were wrong for elevating their leaders to the place of Christ Jesus. And Paul rhetorically responds with three questions in verse 13. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The emphatic answer is being no, no, and no. <laughs> uh, rhetorical questions in parenting is a great tip, by the way. Christ is, is one. He is not fractionalized. He, he is the head, and he only has one body, entirely indivisible. That's the church. But who is crucified for their sins? It's a great way to stave off nonsense. Who is crucified for your sins? Remember that thing, the cross? It's going to come back in the next section. So central to Paul's thinking. 
and it, obviously it wasn't Paul who was crucified for them. And then here might have been the core problem. He says, whose name was placed on you at your baptism? Whose name was placed on you? Who owns the church? Or better, to whom does the church belong? Luke tells us, uh, interestingly, in Acts 18 that was read there, Apollos was an Alexandrian Jew. He was eloquent. He was well-studied. Very brilliant man. Polished rhetoric. Uh, in verse 24 there of Acts, he is mighty in the Scriptures. He knew the Bible well. Probably had a bunch of it memorized. And he could tell you exactly, this is what Isaiah says here. That's back in the Proverbs. This is the, you know, the Pentateuch. Um, he was a very smart man. He was a polished rhetorician with a whole lot of capabilities. And apparently there were some huge fans of his while others were partial to Paul. Um, we don't know about Peter, uh, his Aramaic name, Kephas. Uh, we don't know if Peter visited Corinth. There is some speculation about that, perhaps not. Maybe some of the Jews there from the synagogue who converted thought Peter, well, we've heard about Peter, man, this guy's a legend. He is awesome. I want his signature, you know. Maybe that's what happened. But either way, there were clearly people who had preferences. And some, again, were super proud of their humble disposition toward Christ. Oh, I'm just Christian, man. Like, all you fools. I just follow Christ. And they were boasting about it. They were the real Christians, right? Well, that's all were problematic here. But the real issue was that wisdom which is going to come up in the next section. Wisdom was code for higher social status in the Greco-Roman world. If you were schooled in the wisdom of the Greeks, you were up here. You were a philosopher king. You were at the top. And it was something to boast in. Each faction believed they had a monopoly on their particular wisdom, which was gleaned from their favorite teachers and preachers. Some probably loved Socrates. Some really thought Plato had it together. Others were big fans of Aristotle. And that bled into the church. And this mindset came and it caused a whole lot of problems. But Paul deals with the apparent problem very simply, the problem of baptism. That, that may have very well been the issue here. He says he doesn't even fully remember who he baptized which I just love that. I love when you read that, like, I don't even know who I baptized. He remembers Crispus and Gaius. Gaius might have been Titius Justice. We're not sure. Remember, he was the first host there in their home church. He did baptize the household of Stephanus, and there were some of the earlier converts there. But it doesn't matter. Christ had not sent Paul to baptize, but to do the work of the apostles, to proclaim the gospel. Not with the polished wisdom and rhetoric that the Greeks idolatrously love so much, but instead with true Holy Spirit power. It's not, about, it's not about stroking egos as much as it is changing hearts. Paul didn't, he never boasted in human reason. He never really presented himself like he was just this remarkable genius. Though we look in retrospect and think, man, the man was a genius. He never came across that way. It wasn't about human reason, using philosophical wit to wow his audience. No, he was a witness to the crucified but risen Messiah. And make no mistake, the power of the cross is, is emptied, it's powerless, and it's impotent when we think that human wisdom is what gets people into the kingdom. And Paul says that is not the case. 
I love what Hodge says. He says it well. Whatever obscures the cross deprives the gospel of its power. Whatever obscures the cross, which is he's going to go right into it in the next section, that deprives the gospel of its power. So how shall we then live? The power of the kingdom is rooted in God's mysterious work in the hearing, receiving, and application of the gospel to the hearts of men by the Holy Spirit. Had a chance Friday to witness to a guy for like 30 or 45 minutes. And, you know, totally uh, not interested in any one religion, but man, we, we stood there in the snow talking for forever and, you know, pray for him. Uh, I won't mention his name here, but pray for him uh, because I was thinking much about this that there's something mysterious about God uses the sounds that come through over the vocal cords that go into the ears to change a heart. And we can't explain that. You can get all the science you want on how you know, sound waves work and how they travel through the air and how the ear is a receptor to those things. And you know, how, how does that translate? And then it goes into the soul of a man or a woman which cannot be physically pinpointed in a body. And God mysteriously works in that. And it's just, it's amazing. The power does not lie in human ingenuity and creativity. And we do not need to spruce up the gospel as though it were a bland soup and need a more seasoning. When dealing with the root of man, the heart, we dare not assume that our clever speech and wit is worthy of the hearer's admiration and praise. And nor do we assume that that's what's needed in order to win someone to Christ. Remember Moses' hang-up. Man, I don't think I'm a great speaker. That's fine. I got your brother. If that's what you're concerned about, I have you covered. See, the saying is true. What you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. If you win people because of pizza-infused youth groups with no catechesis and sound theological training to be found anywhere near the place, you win them to what I call lowest common denominator Christianity. Lowest common denominator Christianity, not to bring up any fraction math work for you, but evangelicals are notorious for their truncated gospel of niceness and tolerance. The preaching, if we can call it that, has been reduced down to lowest, the lowest level. And rather than raising the bar for everyone so that everyone can grow and mature, they lower it to the very bottom. And when the message of the cross is obscured by external pleasantries meant to appeal to the carnality of men, don't be surprised when something like wokeness comes along and infects the church. If the culture strongly wants to go one way, don't be surprised when the church wants to inexorably follow along. And this is what Paul was up against. And it will come out later in other social issues related to worship that he had to correct. But cultural pressures like the tranny train or child sacrifice, cultural pressures will force Christians <laughs> either to oppose it or pretend neutrality and eventually endorse it, okay? So instead of having a united front in obedience to God, whose name we bear on our baptism and in our baptism, will be splintered and rendered ineffectual, which is precisely our problem today. 
Listen, Satan's goal isn't to get the church to turn on Christ. It's to get the church to turn on itself. And a problem that can arise in our churches is a spirit of competition. And we are here to proclaim the gospel in every area of life. If it's a part of your life, it's part of Christ's ever-expanding kingdom. And we are here to be spirit-filled worshipers, God-fearing Christians, God-obeying masculine men, God-obeying feminine women. And we are here to saturate our lives with the scriptures so that we reflect Christ in all of our thinking and in all of our doing. And the moment that stops being the program is the moment that something else takes its, takes its place. Um, in the worst of scenarios, churches will be known for wicked things like sodomy. And they will proudly and unashamedly welcome everyone, except us street preachers. Uh, they will welcome everyone. You know, that's sort of like worst case scenario. But there are some upsides. Uh, during COVID, it became very clear that even we were dubbed as being the medical freedom church. Yes, we are very much for medical freedom. We are highly skeptical of any drug or vaccine that's on the market. Informed consent matters, and you should make wise decisions in that arena. But the Scientocracy is a real problem, and it's an enemy of Christ and the freedom that he affords us. But that's not really the main thing, and that's not really what any church should necessarily be known for. And sometimes you can't help it, right? You can't help being known for that when everybody else is closed down and not masked up and you're, you know, doing this. Think about it, for example, opposing child sacrifice. It's obviously an important endeavor. It's a code red problem for us in our culture, as is the problem of statism, its uncle. But were you baptized in the name of the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government? Was Biden crucified for you? Now, you get the point. You get the point. Just because we're pointing out the ugliest fruit on the status tree doesn't mean that we can't see the rest, and nor does it mean that we've forgotten our acts. To be known for chopping trees down with the acts of the gospel is a great problem to have. But we're an equal opportunity tree chopper. <laughs> if it's an idol, it's coming down. Okay, that's the Boniface option. But it's important for us, it's very important, I'm trying to give us some balance here, it's important for us to be anchored in worship, to be, to be anchored in gathering around word and sacrament, and from there we proceed to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. That's been our mantra from day one. But we cannot allow secondary or even tertiary things take central stage. Um, methods of homeschooling or homesteading principles, or maybe your family likes to celebrate this particular holiday in this way, and if you don't do it, you're evil. That sort of thing. Um, those things cannot be the linchpin of a community. It has to be Christ and Him crucified. It has to be. It cannot be your favorite preacher or teacher like it was in Corinth. And th th this celebrityism thing has been going on since the first century. Charles Spurgeon faced it. And people today face it. And it's really hogwash. It has to be Christ. We will never, ever have a united front against the gates of hell if we are divided over nonsense. And churches that do this put down the battering ram and they start throwing stones at each other 
when we should be attacking the gates of hell. And I believe God is very displeased with that. Moreover, ministry is quite simply challenging. Church life is challenging. We all have bumps and bruises. We all have various degre varying degrees of backgrounds and perspectives. Um, and we should do none of this from personal ambition. And, and don't do any of these things to gain a following. And it's tempting, but it's also very terrible. Paul urges us to be rooted in the grace given to us, the grace that provides everything for here and now, as well as later when we see Christ face to face. And listen, if, if we will not believe that the Word of God is sufficient to capture unbelief, we will most certainly not believe that it's sufficient to maintain that belief. It's Christ in you at salvation and Christ in you for the rest of your life. It is Christ who sustains you each and every day. It was Christ who was crucified for you. It, you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the, the preaching of the gospel isn't a rationalistic enterprise where we tickle the minds of men. It's a revelational enterprise that changes the hearts of men. And if we take our eyes off of this incredible grace, a united front we will most certainly not have here in our possession. Are you tempted to have your ears tickled and your heart altogether avoided? Remember your baptism. Are you tempted to despair? Remember your baptism. Are you tempted to sin? Remember your baptism instead. Are you tempted to sow discord? Remember your baptism. Are you tempted to flattery or gossip? Remember your baptism. Are you tempted to try to get a leg up on someone else? To outdo them? One-upmanship, we might say. Well, instead, remember your baptism. Are you tempted to put others down? Remember your baptism. Are you tempted to claim a holier-than-thou attitude in competition with the person sitting next to you? Remember your baptism. Uh, what about this? Are you tempted to try and impress others with your obviously better ideas? Remember your baptism. Anytime we are tempted to deviate from our identity in Christ and what we have by His grace and His grace alone, we must remember whose name we bear. Baptism, you see, calls us back together. The cross calls us back together. Who was crucified for you? Next question, who was crucified for us? Whose loyalty goes before any other loyalty? If you are prone to wander, as the hymn tells us, and we all are, remember that it is Christ who calls us back together. It's very, very simple. Because Jesus came to save his people, we need to agree and be united in mind by confessing a common faith, and we avoid division by seeking that which is best for his body, even if it means putting our personal issues or agendas aside. End quote. See, one writer points out three basic things here in chapter one Christ crucified as the power in weakness of God, which we'll get to next week. Paul's rhetorically unimpressive cross-shaped ministry and the conversion of the Corinthians who were generally a group of nobodies. 
So we, we are nobodies, really. But we're Christ's nobodies. Which means we are somebody to the only person that matters. So don't pretend you came out of the womb with a suit and tie on. <laughs> knowing God and knowing the self are the keys to sanctification, and they are keys to having and sustaining a united front for the sake of the kingdom. The church of Jesus Christ, I will remind you, brothers and sisters, this is God's church. It's Christ's bride, and she is not to find herself with competing allegiances or other lovers. Instead, she is to be utterly and entirely obedient to her Lord above all earthly powers. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your word, and we are grateful for what you did in your spirit through Paul. In dealing with the church in Corinth, we are here 2,000 years later facing the same types of temptations and I'm grateful that your word is, is clear to us, that we can understand it and we can apply it and we can be challenged to remember that it is your name that sits upon us. And there is no other name whereby we can be saved. No other name whereby we can be delivered. No other name that we should be proclaiming than your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as this word goes forth, God, I pray that you would plant seeds of faith, and may it grow into a fruitful and abundant crop. Through Christ we pray. Amen.